Uh, Today, our reading from the Bible is coming from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and 57 through 62, uh, which is printed in your insert or you can find it in your Bible. When these days drew near for him to, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you. Uh, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Father, uh, how good it is uh, for, for us to be gathered together today as your people and to be reminded that you dwell in the presence of your people. Uh, Father, we respond to you uh, out of gratitude for the wonderful grace that we've already rehearsed in our service this morning, that though we are exposed before your word as broken sinners, we come to confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we respond out of deep gratitude with our gifts, tithes and offerings, asking that you would use these gifts to advance your kingdom in this world in order that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we, your people, come now before your word, we pray that we would hear this same gospel, that we would hear it and be doers of your word. Father, we pray that no matter how we come this morning, distracted, discouraged, in pain, suffering, excited, anxious to be with your people, however we come this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand that we really are all the same. Father, uh, how good it is uh, for all stand in need of the same thing. We stand in need of this wonderful good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that though we are broken far more than we could even imagine, in Him we are also far more loved and secure and accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray that this good news would break upon our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Right now, um, we are in a series. Uh, we're in a series where we're looking at the stories of the kingdom. Basically, what we're doing is we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking at the parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9 and those verses that we read earlier in our service. And in this passage, Jesus gives us a couple little short parables in in that story that was read. Uh, And they're stories really that tell us what it means to follow Jesus. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was on vacation with my family and I took my kids home to 
Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, where my, my parents still live. And, um, and I'll give you fair warning, I know that this is risky because I'm about to talk about LSU football. So all you Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, Tennessee fans, whatever, just hold on. Um, you know, maybe instead of thinking about LSU you, and how much you hate LSU, you can insert your own school into this story. Uh, but when I was about seven years old, uh, my dad took me to my first LSU football game at Death Valley. And, um, and on this particular weekend, uh, I, someone gave me tickets to the LSU Florida game. And uh, so I was able to take my now seven-year-old son to Death Valley um, for a, a Tiger football game. And I think in that moment, so at some point during the game, I saw through my son's eyes why it meant so much to me that my dad took me to that game when I was that young. Um, because, you know, you almost have a hard time putting the feeling into words, but, you know, 90 plus thousand people screaming and chanting and, and cheering and all that, it awakens something deep in your soul. If you're a Cajun like me at Tiger Stadium, it awakens something almost disturbing. But, um, and I think you know what that is. Um, it, it's really this, what it awakens is this, this feeling of transcendence, really. Um, it, it's the feeling of getting caught up in, in, in something and being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And, and, that, and that's really what makes it so exciting. You know, I'm so glad that I didn't take my son the following week to, to watch LSU get beat by Ole Miss. Um, that would have been a whole different kind of feeling of transcendence. But I know that the Ole Miss fans, you know, they had that same kind of feeling when they, when they won, right? The elation of being a part of something bigger than yourself, a whole stadium full of people and all that kind of stuff. Even think about how, in this time of year, when we think about college football, how, how you talk about your favorite teams. You know, you talk about, we're going to have a great season. You know, we've got a lot of injuries right now. We did a great job of recruiting last year. We lost or we won. And some of you that use those words, we, you've never even put on football pads. You know, you didn't do it. You didn't make any road trips to recruit athletes. You, you didn't win or lose yesterday. But, but we talk about it that way because we all long deep in our souls, right, to be connected to and to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we're constantly, as human beings, we're constantly grasping for something bigger, something eternal, right, something, the ideal, the thing that's bigger than us, that can give our lives meaning and hope and joy, even, even if just for a moment. I mean, college football is really a silly example of it, but we, we are wired this way. We're built this way. We're designed this way, right? We seek out relationships, right? Uh, friendships and romantic love and the love between, that exists between a parent and a child, right? We want to be captured by a glory, by a beauty bigger than us. You know, we read books and literature and we go to the movies. Certainly we do that to be entertained. But you also know that we long to be inspired. We, we long to get caught up in something that's grand and glorious and meaningful and so, so on. It's hardwired into the very core of our humanity. Now, if you look at that passage that we read earlier in Luke chapter 9, do you see what's happening there? I mean, these men, they want to follow, 
right? They want to be a part of and connected to something bigger than themselves, right? What is it that they want to be a part of? Jesus mentions it twice in those verses. It's the kingdom of God. This grand thing, this glorious thing, this beautiful thing, this real, this promise that Jesus comes with, this promise that he is going to put back the world to the way it was meant to be, right? That he's going to come and he's going to undo all the brokenness and all the sadness, right? Um, It's all going to be redeemed in the kingdom of God. And so, right, they want to follow Jesus. They want to be a part of that. But you notice in that story that we read earlier, three guys come to him. And each time, Jesus slams on the brakes to their enthusiasm, right? It's like he's saying, "You're, you're right that you want to be a part of this. This thing that's bigger than you. But have you truly counted the cost? Have you really sensed the urgency of my call, right? And have you truly dropped your conditions to come into my kingdom? Those are our three points this morning. You're hardwired to be a part of this bigger, more glorious thing, but you can't be a part of it. You cannot be a part of it until you've counted the cost, until you've sensed the urgency, and until you've dropped your conditions. So Jesus tells this first would-be follower to count the cost, right? And certainly you get a feel for the enthusiasm of this uh, would-be follower. In verse 57, he says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? But then you see in the very next verse that Jesus is making this man think about that. That statement that he's just made. It's like Jesus is saying, have you really thought that out? Have you really thought about what it will mean for you to follow me? See, verse 58, Jesus said to this man, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, just for a second, think with me again about why this man is so excited and enthused to follow Jesus wherever he goes. I mean, Jesus came with this promise that he was going to make everything wrong in this world right. What if you lived in the first century with this man, right? And here came Jesus declaring himself to be the king of the kingdom that he was bringing, promising that he was bringing the kingdom of God. And then you saw and heard, heard about Jesus doing all these miracles all over the place, right? And he was healing the sick and he was casting out demons and he was cleansing lepers and he was healing the paralytic, right? And he was even raising the dead and calming storms and things like that. All the stuff I just mentioned to you, you can find it all in chapters four through eight of Luke's gospel. He's doing all this amazing stuff, right? But what was the deal with those miracles that Jesus came doing? You know, these weren't magic tricks. This wasn't Jesus showing off. You know, trying to wow and impress people. Look what I can do. That wasn't the point of the miracles at all. The miracles were a sign of his coming kingdom. Jesus, you see, through these miracles, he was proclaiming something. He was proclaiming that all the brokenness of the world, all the brokenness that you and I let into the world through our sin, he was coming to undo it all. Right? He was going to turn back. The hands of misery and brokenness and sadness and even death. Right. He was reversing the effects of the fall. That's what the miracles showed you. And this man is saying, I want to be a part of that. You know, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said back to him, have you truly counted the cost? 
Right. But, you know, what is the cost? Didn't you see Jesus is saying, I'm going to set everything right. I'm going to bring my kingdom. But. But the kingdom is going to come in a way that is upside down and, and really cuts across the grain of your expectations of what the kingdom will look like in your life. The kingdom is going to come through an upside down king and his upside down people. Right. I'll bring victory, Jesus is saying. But read the rest of the story of Luke. It'll be victory that comes through defeat. I'll bring redemption, but it's redemption that comes through being broken. I'll bring healing, but it's healing that comes through suffering. I'll bring fulfillment and peace, but it's fulfillment and peace that comes through self-denial and sacrifice. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, I'm the king without a, without a palace, without a home. Right? Look at me, Jesus is saying, I don't have status, I don't have influence, I don't have wealth, I don't have a place to live, I'm an outcast, and I am, I am rejected. I'm the upside-down king who will set the world right in a way that is completely upside-down, and in a, way, in a way that shatters your expectations. He's saying, are you ready for that? Because if you want to follow me and be a part of my kingdom, you have, you have to embrace and count the cost. You know, the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure they make for great cross-stitched art to hang on your wall in your home or something like that. But the in the Beatitudes, do you realize how upside down and unexpected they are? <laughs> right? I, I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. Right. These are the ones who will inherit the earth. These are the ones who will one day see God. These are the ones who will be satisfied and comforted and inherit the earth. I mean, it's so backwards and so upside down. But what was Jesus doing when he gave those Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? This is what he was doing. He was saying, this is what my followers will look like. This is the lifestyle they have chosen. This is what it, my upside down kingdom looks like in your life, in my people. Have you counted the cost? I mean, can't you imagine Jesus, other disciples here thinking, you know, whoa, Jesus, you know, hold on. You know, here comes a guy. He's excited about joining into our kingdom. And, you know, you talking about foxes, you know, have holes, but the son of man has nowhere to lay, lay his head. It's kind of a recruitment killer. Um, you know, I mean, we're trying to gain some momentum and build a movement and make a difference in the world and gain some followers and so on. I mean, it seems like we should be selling the benefits, not the cost. How will we ever build a kingdom like this? And you should be, here, be hearing Jesus say something like this in the response. The only way that the world is going to get turned upside down is through an upside down king and his upside down followers. Come and be a part of something bigger than yourself. But count the cost. This is the upside down kingdom of God. And second, if you really follow Jesus, you don't just need to count the cost. You also have to sense the urgency of Jesus call. Look in verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied to Jesus, let Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And doesn't this seem like a harsh response in verse 60? Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Now, at, at first sight, what it looks like is it looks like this man's father has just died and he needs to go back and make funeral arrangements or, or, or something like that. What's actually going on here is this is a like a traditional and cultural kind of idiom that he that he's using here. Um, he's he's really and, you know, we miss the impact of it. We miss the impact of it really from our individualistic Western uh, way of thinking. Because this was a culture where the family was everything, where duty to family took precedence over the needs of the individual. And what this man was actually saying was, let me do my duty and take care of my family. And one day, off in the future, when my father passes away, then I'll come and follow you. He's saying, I want to go, but now's not the right time. Not just yet. I can't follow you yet. That would mean alienating me from my father and my family. Surely there will be another time to follow you. Now, there's a reason I think this kind of bothers us, right? Because, I mean, what this man wants to do, it's not a bad thing. I mean, he wants to care for his family. He wants to take care of his commitment to his family. But let me help you think through this in your own life. Listen to me. The things that get in the way of you sensing the urgency of Jesus' call are almost always good things. I mean, it's the good things that you and I have turned into ultimate things that keep us from sensing the urgency of Jesus' call to follow Him. And let me just take this one step further with my terminology. We, we turn good things into ultimate things because we are looking for salvation in them. So desperate are we to be a part of something bigger, to have something give our lives meaning and hope and value, we take good things and we turn them into saviors. So yeah, maybe it could be your family, the stability and the security it provides you, or maybe it's your sense of duty to your family, like this man. You know, I'll know that I'm a good person when I've done my duty. And that'll give my life a sense of meaning and value. But it could also be your money, couldn't it? Right. I mean, when it becomes an ultimate thing in your life, a savior, I mean, you start looking at your bank statement, not to see the value and worth of your bank statement, but to find your value and your worth in life and how big it is. Or maybe it's achievement. You know, that can be a very good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate, you only know who you are when you look at your resume. Or maybe it's power. And when it becomes ultimate, you can't conceive of a life where you give up control and where you're not in control and when you're not able to call the shots. Or maybe it's approval. That's good. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, the one thing that matters is protecting your reputation at all costs. And we could add to this list. We um, we could add safety and we could add sexuality and we could add, add affection and security and well-behaved children and a spouse and materialism and on and on. How do you know when the good things in your life have become ultimate things? I think you probably know the answer to this. It starts to feel, they start to feel very, very urgent in your life. You know, I have to be liked, right? I, I cannot fail in my duty. I can't let go of my money or things. I have to climb the ladder and be successful. That have to have kind of language that you use, that's the language of bondage. It's the language of slavery. It's the language of captivity. These things start shouting at you with incredible urgency in your life. You're nothing without this or that. You don't have value without this or that. You won't be secure without this or that. And Jesus is saying to the second man that he needs to instead, since the urgent call of a savior 
who can really set him free and doesn't lead to more and more bondage in his life. Are you thinking in your life, I'll have time later. I can deal with this later. Yes, Jesus, but this is more urgent to me right now. You do the diagnosis yourself. It's almost always the good things in your life that you have turned into ultimate things that keep you from sensing the urgency of Jesus' call. President Dwight Eisenhower, he once said, what is important is seldom urgent. And what is urgent is seldom important. And you know, some of you know the name uh, Stephen Covey. Um, He wrote uh, the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or whatever. And in that book, he popularized Eisenhower's statement uh, and, and his thought, and he came up with something that he called the urgent important matrix. Some of you know about this. Um, And the idea being really how to decide what you should give your attention to in life, right? And so in this matrix or grid that he came up with, you know, he said there are some situations that are not important and not urgent. I mean, really just distractions in life. And then there are some situations that are important but not urgent. And then there are some that are not important but urgent. And, you know, those constitute kind of a minor minor crisis. You've got to deal with them right away. But finally, he says, there are some situations that wind up being both very important and very urgent in your life. And that right there is what Covey would call a major crisis in your life. When something in your life or in your business or in your family or whatever is both urgent and important, it cannot be ignored. Right. It can't be put off. It has to be dealt with. What is important is seldom urgent. And what is urgent is seldom important. But when you meet the rare situation that is both urgent and important, you had better pay attention because that is a major crisis point in your life. And what about this would-be follower of Jesus, right? He seems to get the importance of following Jesus, right? But he doesn't sense the urgency of it. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, Jesus said. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what about you? What good thing has become ultimate to you? What thing in your life is causing you to say to Jesus, not right now, let me do this or that first. You know, I would love for everyone in this room to follow Jesus. But have you counted the cost and have you sensed the urgency of Jesus' call? Without that, you cannot follow Jesus. Okay, finally, and somewhat briefly, Jesus tells this third would-be follower that he must drop his conditions. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And it seems pretty reasonable, right? He's not going, he's not saying, let me wait until my father passes away. He just wants to go and say goodbye. But Jesus said to him in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And very simply, here's what I think is going on. This man is presenting Jesus with a condition. I'll follow you, but first. But, right? I'll follow you as long as I can go whatever. I'll follow you as long as I don't have to give up this or that. And think about this parable that Jesus told this man. This picture is of someone plowing his field with a horse or oxen or something like that. And the way to plow a straight row in the ground is by looking ahead to a fixed point in the distance. That's the, the, the mental image that Jesus wants you to have. I mean, farmers who keep looking backwards while they're plowing the field, they're zigzagging all over the place. Um, they're not going in straight lines. Um, you know, the, the man who's looking back and saying, 
but my family, but my finances, but my business, but my sexuality, but my friendships, but what people think of me, but whatever. To follow Jesus, he is saying, you have to drop your conditions to come into my kingdom. He calls you to take your hands off of your life, to lose control of your life and to follow him completely. That's what Jesus is asking of this man and asking of us. The only people who are fit for Jesus's kingdom are those who submit to him without conditions. And this means submitting to him in everything. Right in your business, in your family, in the church, in your relationships, into your in your wants and your desires, even. He calls you to submit to him and follow him even when you don't know what the outcome will be. He is the king of the kingdom. And that means that your life doesn't belong to you. You know, one of my favorite songs is by Johnny Cash. Um, and it's uh, it's called The Wanderer. Um, he, he sang it with the band U2. And, uh, and anyway, in that song, he sings this line where he says, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. And they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Do you say that you want the kingdom? You know, I want the glory. I want to be a part of this beauty. I want to be a part of this transcendent thing. But I'm not willing to give up control in my life. I'm not willing to get off the throne of my life. The ki- this kingdom has a king and it's Jesus. And therefore, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, look, you were made, you and I were made for something bigger than ourselves, right? We're we're made to be captivated by a beauty bigger, right? We're we're made to be be captivated by a glory caught up in something bigger than ourselves. And I could stand up here, I think, and give you all kinds of arguments for the things we just talked about. I could give you every argument that I could think of for you to realize and sense the urgency of Jesus's call. I mean, the things you pine after that give you maybe passing glimpses of the transcendence your heart naturally seeks, right? The football team, the successful business, the love of friends or of a spouse, they fall so far short of what you were made for. They are all fading and passing. Some years your football team is not going to be very successful, right? And your success in business, do you realize how very, very fragile and so dependent and subject to circumstances it actually is? I mean, even the love of friends, they will all let you down eventually. I mean, they might stab you in the back, but even if they don't stab you in the back, eventually they're going to die on you and leave you alone. Since the urgency of Jesus' call in in an eternal glory is at stake that never fades and never passes away. And I could give you every argument for counting the cost and going all in. There may be loss and suffering and rejection and pain that you endure for following Jesus. But what is that compared to the things that Jesus promises to give you in his kingdom? Things that will last forever, right? He promises you love and fulfillment and joy and glory that will last into eternity. And I could make more arguments for you to drop your conditions before the king. You do not name him. He is the king. He names you. And he places demands upon you and me. I mean, you can never have true freedom without, without submitting entirely and completely. That's the only way it comes. But listen, here's what I'm saying. I could give you every argument, but do you know what? 
arguments alone will never change you. I can think of some of the dumbest and most destructive things I have ever done in my life, right? And I knew all the arguments for not making those choices. I knew all the arguments for why I should not covet. All the arguments for why I should forgive and not be bitter. All the arguments for why I should be patient and trust in God's timing in my life. And not try to grab the, grab the reins and the control. And you do this too, don't you? You know all the arguments, but you still do it. See, arguments only get you so far. What you really need if you're going to count the cost. What you really need if you're going to sense the urgency and drop your conditions is a glorious, beautiful, transcendent, not argument, but person. And you see, Jesus, He is the embodiment of His kingdom. Luke 9.51, that, that very first verse that was in our reading, it's a very important verse in Luke's Gospel. And, and it's why I included it in our reading, where it says, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. For Luke... That moment is a turning point in his gospel story. Because that's the theme that dominates not just this chapter, but the next ten chapters of his book. Jesus, he's giving you a picture from this point forward of Jesus, Jesus determinedly and resolutely and with sharpened and supreme focus headed to Jerusalem. Nothing will sidetrack him. Nothing will deter him. And what is waiting for him in Jerusalem is a cross. And I'm saying this honestly to you. The arguments are all there. But I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do these things without seeing Him. I mean, the cost will always be too much. Other things will always be more urgent and giving up the control of your life is just too risky. Until you see a beautiful, glorious, transcendent person, Jesus, who, listen to me, will never ever ask you to do more for him than he is willing to do for you and has done for you. In just a moment, those who believe in Jesus will be invited to this table, the Lord's Supper, with bread that represents his body, with wine that represents his blood. And it is a reminder to us that he will never ask us to do more for him than he is willing and has done for us. I mean, because he sensed the urgency for you. For you to be a part of his kingdom, he had to die for you. I mean, he didn't look back. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, he counted the cost that to bring you in, he had to be cut off and cast outside. That to save you, he had to live the life you could not live and die the death you should have died. Friends, when that beauty, when that glory, when that wonder that you are loved like that, when it breaks upon your heart and when you realize how he loved you, you will sense His urgent call in your life. And you will accept the cost of this upside-down kingdom and take your hands off of your life. And then and only then will you be free and find this bigger thing, the kingdom of God, that you are made to be a part of. And nothing else in this life will satisfy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You as we do each week We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given it to us that it would be a light unto our feet. And Father, we pray that its light would break into our hearts. That we would each individually have opportunity this very day. 
to think through the same things that Jesus asked these men to think through. We all want to be a part of something bigger. We know that we were made for something transcendent, something glorious, something beautiful. But Father, help us to think about ourselves. Have we counted the cost? Have we sensed the urgency of your call? And have we dropped our conditions? Come into your kingdom and taking our hands off of our life and submitted to you. Father, we pray that in doing so, you would allow us to see that this is the only way of freedom. This is the only Savior who will truly set us free in this life and issue us into His kingdom, this bigger thing that we were made and redeemed to be a part of. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.